Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we would love to collect those and we will certainly pray for you and uh, glad that you are here with us if you're visiting today and pray that uh, we could grow in a deeper friendship together. Romans chapter 3, happy resurrection Sunday, which, we, <laughs> which you celebrate every year or every, every week, but once a year we remember the Reformation. And I meant to say, happy Reformation Sunday, as we um, uh, remember what happened some 500 years ago. And why is that important? Well, I'm hoping to make that clear in our time in God's Word today. On this day, uh, October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. I think it's important to note that he wasn't vandalizing the church, but he was actually posting information, which was common, uh, to communicate uh, news among the community. And so in these theses or arguments, uh, they were against the practices and defections of, of the church, 95 of them. And they became one of the most printed documents in history. To use a modern term, Luther's theses went viral through the ranks of the Holy Roman Empire, which stretched throughout Europe. Martin Luther's post ignited the spark that began the Reformation. The 95 theses were written in Latin, the academic language, so Luther's motivation was not to stir up the masses. But some of the students in Wittenberg who were under Luther, or along with Luther, translated them into German and with a Gutenberg printing press, <laughs> sent it wide throughout Europe and quite a splash did it make. From the 95 Theses, which I reviewed this week, the first one is this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Theses 52, it is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence, even though the indulgence commissary or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. Number 53, they are the enemies of Christ and the Pope who forbid altogether the preaching of the Word of God in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. Number 54, injury is done to the Word of God when in the same sermon an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences than to the Word of God. Number 94, Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and even hell itself. And the last one, 95, and thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace, of which Martin Luther knew the prospects of nailing this to the church door would cost him his life. God did spare him, but the difficulties were great. I mentioned indulgences here. What do I mean by that? And what does it mean to be, pro we're from a stream of Protestantism, um, as Baptists, believers in the free church, in the Word of God, what, it was, what was this reference to indulgences that so bothered Luther? Well, they were sold and applied by the church. They were sold and applied to the living for forgiveness and release from purgatory. John Tetzel, 
who was a friar and a preacher at the same time as Luther. Um, He was also put in charge of collecting indulgences in Saxony, Germany, um, which put him in a headlong collision with Luther, which came. Tetzel shamelessly pushed indulgences, and a little jingle was coined by him, uh, and it made its way through the ranks of Saxony. As soon as the coin hits the chest, another soul flies to its heavenly rest. And so people believed that they were buying their mothers and their fathers and their loved ones out of purgatory, which by the way, there is no biblical foundation for purgatory at all. Buying them out of this purging state. And that's what made Martin Luther furious. In addition to his criticisms of indulgences, Luther also reflected popular sentiment about St. Peter's Basilica which Pope Leo X was raising funds for that. In his theses, why does not the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, which was a Roman family, the richest family in Rome, in the height of their glory, why doesn't the Pope build with his massive wealth the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than the money of the poor believers? Well, you can see why that wouldn't sit well in Rome at all. And in July of 1520, Pope Leo X issued a papal bull, a public decree, and concluded that Luther's propositions were heretical and gave Luther's, um, uh, Luther 120 days to recant. Luther refused to recant or re- deny his assertions. And so on January 30th, 1521, Pope Leo excommunicated Martin Luther from the Catholic Church. Well, I think it's important for us to realize in our study of Romans that these convictions in Luther were created in a vacuum. In the years preceding the Reformation, Luther was immersed in studying and teaching the Bible. Two books in particular that changed his life. The Psalms and the book of Romans. From his study of God's word, he began to see what had been eclipsed through the neglect of the church. Some four years after posting these 95 theses to the door, he was called into account and faced the trial before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. The trial was held in what we would pronounce in English, diet of worms, (laughs) the diet of worms, and Luther was asked on what authority he dared to defy the Pope in the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, and Luther replied famously, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture or by evident reason, for I cannot believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. So Luther's appeal to biblical authority became controversial because he insisted on the word sola, 
alone. There's a big difference between saying the authority of Scripture concerning what you believe and how you're going to live and saying the authority of Scripture alone. And that's what could not be tolerated. The theological summary of the Reformation and why it's so important to us on this Lord's Day is because we are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to hear from His Word what is the truth. And so to summarize the Reformation, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That should be the, our heartbeat as we seek to live for God in our generation. It's been pointed out that the Reformation is not just based around uh, three individuals, three, three or four individuals like Calvin or Luther or Zwingli. It's a massive movement of Christian conviction as the Bible was recovered, the gospel was recovered from what was eclipsed through its silence. Luther was the battering ram, but he ignited and stood with a chorus of world changers. So we haven't come here today to worship Martin Luther. In fact, there are many things about his life which would really cause us great concern. But concerning the gospel and the recovery of the gospel from the book of Romans, we gather today, which is why we're looking at Romans 3. I think this is our fourth message in this paragraph. We'll be charting on to new waters next Sunday, but I wanted to look at verse 25 and 26 in particular. Martin Lloyd-Jones called this the Acropolis of the Bible. These verses 21 through 26, and we find a deepening of our understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. We preach the cross here. We sing about the cross here, that God forbid that we should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 through 26 deepens our understanding of the meaning of, of, of Calvary's cross. And we've read words like redemption in this paragraph. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've been set free by Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer. We've been redeemed by His blood and His life. We've been bought from the slave market of sin and adopted into His forever family. We've been reconciled with God. Our enemy status has been changed. We'll find in this very book of Romans that we're at enmity of God, with God in our lost condition. Our enemy status has been changed through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're no longer at enmity. The wrath of God no longer rests upon us. We've been received into His presence through the work of Jesus Christ. We are His sons and daughters because of Jesus. In Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians, to the, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new person, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all this is from God, Paul said. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The reason we want other people to know the gospel is because we are rejoicing in what God has done for us. We've been reconciled with God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Are you without Jesus Christ today? Our plea to you would be, be reconciled to God. Call out upon, to Him. Call to Him. Receive Him by faith. Acknowledging your sin, repenting of it, and receive what God has done through Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer. He is the one who has brought reconciliation. There's something else that we see in this paragraph in chapter 3, verse 25. He's the propitiation for our sins. We don't shy away from words. We want a deeper understanding of what, what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. God propitiated himself. Christianity is not about throwing sacrifices at an angry God, hoping that he'll not be angry with us anymore. We could never do that. In Proverbs, it says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. God propitiated himself. What does that mean? He sent his son that we are propitiated by his blood. That his wrath, his anger against sin would no longer be counted against us. And he would bestow upon us the righteousness of his son. Christ is our propitiation. That is, out of love for the glory of God, Jesus Christ averts the wrath of God against us so that we're never condemned. One of the greatest things we can say as believers is, I have no condemnation in Jesus Christ my Lord. I have a past, don't you? I have things I'm ashamed of. I'm aware of how I've fallen short of God's glory on so many occasions. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. Bring your failures to Him. Receive His grace today into your life. Put away the urging of your heart to want to justify yourself before God. And receive what Christ has done for you. That's the only thing we can bring to him is brokenness and strife. And he extends his son to us that we might be received and forgiven. It says in verse 25 that God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Let me just pause there for a moment so there's no misunderstanding. An Episcopalian priest once asked R.C. Sproul, if Jesus had scratched his finger on a nail, would that have made the atonement? Would that have accomplished the atonement? He wasn't trying to be blasphemous, Sproul said, but was asking a serious theological question. What lay behind the question was this. If Jesus scratched his finger on a nail and drew blood, wouldn't that be enough since salvation came through the blood of Christ? No, Sproul says. Jesus didn't simply have to bleed, he had to die. Because the penalty that God imposes upon sin is what? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when the Bible says, through faith in his blood, it literally means through faith in his death. A substitutionary death, a propitiation for our sins for those who believe upon him. So I, I think when I, when I think of the Reformation, I think it's the recovery of these uh, uh, terms, uh, going back to the text of Scripture, that we might understand what God has done for us. It's a recovery of biblical authority, which is huge, to deliver the church from 
indulgences, and a host of other error, we must go back to the Word of God because that is the only truth that's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It determines our morality. It determines our behavior. It determines our salvation. So, think with me for a few moments this morning as we look at Romans 3 on this new term, which it really isn't new, (laughs) justification by faith. From redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, justification by faith. It's the hinge on which salvation turns. That I am declared righteous by God by faith in Jesus Christ. It is the inner meaning of the cross. R.C. Sproul, once again, the cross of Jesus Christ not only redeems us, it also vindicates God because it says here in verse 26 that it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. This righteousness of God, this justification by faith, I think is an important question, don't you? How is a person made right with God? And that's where the answers go everywhere. The gospel message is centered on this justification by faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And this doctrine that broke the shackles from the soul of Martin Luther and millions of others exalts God in so doing. This word justification really is the same root as righteousness. So we've been seeing this all the way through Romans 1, 17 to chapter 3 where we are now. And it describes God's act. When God justifies a sinner, He declares them righteous, not because they are in and of themselves, but a righteousness from another has been credited to them by faith in Jesus Christ. The Westminster Catechism says justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which He pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts uh, the person's righteous in His sight, not for anything that they have done or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Jesus. So, how do we want to break this down? Let's look. I was helped by John, John Stott in his book, the, the Cross of Christ. How do we want to break this down? This justification by faith, which is the hinge on which our salvation turns. Uh, let's look first at the source. It's God's grace. In verse 24, we're justified, declared righteous by God, by His grace as a gift. It's as a gift. Salvation in biblical terms, is always and only a gift of God to you through Jesus Christ. The point of Romans 1 through 3 is to make the case that all of us are under sin. And apart from this justification, we can't justify ourselves. Don't we spend most of our life justifying ourselves on so many fronts? How we fall short here making excuses there. We, we, we justify everything. We cannot justify ourselves before God. It's not by works of righteousness that we've done. So I fear that maybe in this gathering today, some may be here and they're, 
You're trusting in your salvation based upon your sincerity. You've got a set of beliefs that you really like. They've been forged in the school of hard knocks and you like them. And if you could stay within the channel of these self-imposed standards of righteousness that you've determined, you're going to be just okay. No one would doubt your sincerity. But it's very possible to be sincerely wrong. And we have to say, who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the text of Scripture or am I going to believe what's right in my own eyes? Just know that's a dangerous path. The Scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, everybody gets killed. There's a way that seems right to you, but in the end, it's death. I fear that some of you today may be under the bondage of of thinking, you know, if I can lock on to some semblance of faithfulness in, in serving, I'll go to church. I'll help out every now and then. In fact, I, I may just get fully immersed. I like the way I feel when I come here because I'm serving and God will certainly take note of that and He'll like me better when all is said and done. But, knowing, but justification doesn't come by serving. I fear that some of you think, you know, if I can just put off some things that I know are foibles and indiscretions, um, if I could just put them off and maybe lead a more respectable life, then I'm going to be just fine. You need to know you won't. You won't. That's not what God's standard has said. Your salvation doesn't come by removing things from your life. It doesn't deal with your past guilt. It doesn't deal with your present problems before God. You're not reconciled. You're not justified. I fear maybe some in this room may think that they're, they're okay because their family has a long history of religious faithfulness. But when you stand before God, you stand alone. So when you stand before God, which we all are destined to do, it's appointed unto man wants to die, then the judgment, what do I say on that day? It's not by my sincerity. It's not by my service. It's not by my external righteousness where I'm putting things off. It's not by my heritage. The only hope we could have on that day is what Christ has done for us. And by faith in Him alone, we're declared righteous before God's throne. Burke Parsons says, if, if there's no preaching about sin and hell in your church, be sure to this, there's no gospel preaching in your church. There's a perishing. So this isn't just one of among many options for you to consider to tweak your life to do better. This is the way of life given to us in the gospel, which is why the Reformation was such a mighty movement that that impacted history the way it did. I'm going to close with this question that I'll introduce now. Don't worry, I'm not closing yet. Are you justified before God? Are you justified before God? Am I right with God?
And then, on the basis of what? Do you make that claim or have that assurance? So, the source is the, the grace of God. Notice with me, secondly, the basis, the work of Christ. By propitiation, by His blood, to be received by what? This gift is to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. So let me just say here, the basis is the work of Christ. What work of Christ? Theologians often put that in two categories that I think is helpful. First, the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience for Christ. One of the reasons, maybe at the top of the list, that Jesus Christ should be the hero of your life is that he walked on this earth for 33 years and never sinned. Scripture is clear on that one. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. What kind of life does God require of you if you would enter, ever enter into heaven, ever be made right with Him? He requires a perfect life. Do you have that? Neither do I. We need one who does. Through the active obedience of Christ, always doing that which pleased the Father, keeping the commandments of God perfectly, he was qualified to be our Redeemer. Not only the active obedience of Christ, but the passive obedience of Christ, which refers to his passion, what he endured for us. Not only his active obedience, but what he suffered on our behalf. Substitution as a substitute. Primarily on the cross. On the cross, Christ took away all our sin, all our debt. And by his life, his act of obedience, we're given perfect righteousness whereby we can stand before the throne of God. Before the throne of God above. What, what plea do we have? Christ, the Lamb of God. The means, the means of this justification, faith in Christ alone. Righteousness is a, you want righteousness in your life? True righteousness, the righteousness that saves? It's a, it's a five-letter word, faith. Trust in Christ alone. And when a sinner repents of his or her sin, trusts in Christ, God takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes that, credits that to your life. So that when Christ looks at a, a sinner trusting in Jesus, he doesn't see our transgressions although he's fully aware of them, but they are not held against us anymore. He sees the righteousness of his son and treats us accordingly. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's the effect, finally. The effect, I'm under no condemnation. I'm one with Jesus Christ. I'm declared right by faith in Christ alone. Notice with me, secondly, a phrase he mentions in verse 26. Romans 3.26, God is just and the justifier of sinners. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I think this just jumped out at me this week. That one of the dilemmas that God has, and we never think of God having a dilemma, but he did in this, and that is upholding his righteousness. We read in verse 23 
that sin is falling short of God's glory. Well, what about all the sins that have happened in the past? How would those be dealt with? We know that the blood of bulls and goats do not forgive sins. That's what's addressed here in this, in this section where he says um, that he's showing his righteousness. He, he mentions in verse 25, divine forbearance. What does that mean? His patience over sins formally committed. How does he show himself to be just? Just by letting it go? No, God solved this dilemma in only a way he could and that's the meaning of the cross. That God's righteousness, His holiness, His requirement from sin was satisfied through the once for all payment of Jesus so that He might justify sinners without violating His justice. I mentioned to you, I think last week, the episode with, um, with David and Nathan after David's sin with Bathsheba. It's in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And David is confronted by the prophet for his sins and the way God spoke about those sins was to say, why have you despised me? That's a good way to understand sin. It's a despising of the Lord. It's a falling short of God's glory. And so, um, and looking at David's response, what hope would he have? Well, and one who would come, who would satisfy that perfectly. Sins formally before the cross, through God's forbearance, were paid for in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so this doctrine of justification is more than forgiveness. It's a declaring of of being righteous. I, I was in my reading this week, one commentator noted a governor or executive may forgive a criminal, a, a judge may pardon one, and yet no judge has ever yet constituted a pardoned criminal righteous. Nor has he ever adopted him into his family. Nor has he ever given him an inheritance. Nor has he ever given him his name. But all of these things and many others God has done for us. He declares us to be righteous only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that is the question of life. In my mind. And I pray that this message today, rooted in scripture, older than the Reformation itself, would cause you to think there's more, there's more to life than what I see. In fact, I think one of the great dangers of living at this time in history is thinking because of the advances that we are afforded in technology, that somehow every generation that's lived behind us doesn't even really matter. And so we're living for the horizontal, we're living for the now. We're living for the, the newest thrill that God would bring us back to. I'm the God of the ages. That the truth we're talking about today will be true a thousand years from now if he would tarry. So cast your anchor on the rock that'll never move. Jesus Christ is that rock.
He closed the Sermon on the Mount by saying, don't be like the foolish man who builds on the sand. Build your house on the rock. Build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. And that is the question of life. Have you been justified? Have you been declared righteous by God in his terms, which is by faith? Oh, it can't be that simple. Surely I have to pay for something. No. No, actually you don't. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. We must all someday stand before God. With what righteousness will you appear before his throne? In that great day when the heavens shall melt and the heat and the earth shall be burned up and all the elements as we know them now and as scripture reveals in Second Peter, how will you approach the throne of God? Justified or lost? Christ has done everything necessary for salvation. I love the words of this man. I'll close with this. Jonathan Gerstner. Nothing stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he does not need him. That he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. If men and women would see that all are shut up under sin, then there, would, then there will be nothing to prevent their everlasting salvation. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. All that is required is acknowledged guilt. But this is too simple for many. Too humbling to declare I'm a sinner, to acknowledge I've broken every one of God's commands, that I've fallen short. Oh no, not me. That's, that's somebody else. They have none, no good works, no virtues that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. This offer becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to their illusions of virtue. Their eyes fix on a mirage. They, they will not drink real water and they die of thirst in the midst of an ocean of grace. Grace, here, now, for you, if you would come in the empty arms of faith, acknowledge your guilt, say, Lord, I need you. You remember the publican in Luke 18, who would not even look upward, but smote his chest, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, may God mark our lives with this kind of trust in Christ alone. Would you bow with me in prayer? We close with a time of responding in faith. And perhaps that has been your need this morning is I'm not justified. I'm not redeemed. I'm lost. Would you turn to him now? Would you call out to Christ now? For 
the believer. These truths have been so encouraging, so filled with hope. It should motivate godly living in all of us. Listen to these words of James Boyce as we enter into this closing prayer. Since grace is the source of the life that is mine, and faith is a gift from on high, I'll boast in my Savior all merit decline and glorify God till I die. O Lord, may it be so of us. And I pray in these closing moments that you would do business with all of us and we would see you for who you are and that our righteousness would be found in Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.